Hey, it's Luke. Today on the pod, we welcome the Inlanders' Samantha Wolfile, who wrote an exhaustive, alarming cover story on the Spokane Regional Health District back in mid-October. It pulled together for the first time and on the record and in one place a bunch of allegations about poor leadership that had been floating around in the ether, but no one had been able to pin them down. That is, until Samantha did it, pinned them down. This was, I will say, to the envy of some journalists in town, myself included, this is not the sort of thing that people will do lightly going on the record about stuff like that. I'd been talking to folks. Sean Vestal told me he almost had the story too. Some of us were close. Samantha actually got it. It's not a huge accomplishment to beat me, but when you get in before Papa Vestal, you know you've done good. So we're extremely thankful that she took the time to chat with us about this stuff. She understands it better than anyone, and it's it's really, really important and, you know, reporters joke about getting scooped, but I think ultimately the important thing is that the story gets out. And really, I mean, this is probably the end of the joking that should happen for this episode because what we're talking about here is deadly serious, literally deadly serious. In this case, it is not a figure of speech to say it is a matter of life and death, the good functioning of our public health system. In a city like Spokane, at a time like now, in our specific geographic location, surrounded by rural communities, bordering Idaho, and everything that that means, which we've been talking about for two years, so we don't need to rehash it, but it's, it's of vital, vital importance to have a well-functioning, well-oiled health department. And the picture Sam has been painting in her ongoing reporting is of a machine that is anything but well-oiled. The picture we do get is a really sad and frankly infuriating portrait of a bunch of passionate, already overworked public servants who reached their breaking point through the actions of an administration that far from helping to ease the immense burden of frontline workers, which, which honestly should be the most pressing, important job an administration has to do every day, certainly during a crisis, support the people doing the work on the ground that serves the mission of the administration, but that administration actually made the job harder, made it for plenty of longtime employees unbearable. One of the folks that I talked to actually kind of framed it in the way of, you know, if it had just been that I was dealing with stresses of the pandemic or maybe that I had just had the stresses of leadership within the district to deal with, that would be one thing. But sort of dealing with all of these things at the same time has led to a, a large number of folks, particularly in leadership, wanting to to leave. And many of those folks did leave. We recorded this interview a couple weeks ago, and in the meantime, Samantha's broken yet more news. There's more folks, and it's worse, actually. So rather than rambling on at length like I usually do, we're going to go right into the interview, and then we're going to put links in the show notes to Samantha's subsequent reporting. So rather than listening to me right now, listen to this interview, and then go read her. That interview... The Inlander's Samantha Wolfile on the sorry state of public health in Spokane, coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Samantha Wolfile, thanks so much for coming on Range. Thanks for having me. 
you've been doing really, really good reporting on uh, the regional health district. As I was preparing for this, I was like, how do I keep this from being a four hour long interview? Because there's just so much. It's been going on for a year. There's all this drama and who doesn't like drama? This is maybe an excessive amount of drama, but there's also really, really complicated HR stuff. There's public record stuff we're going to talk about. There's good, just good governance stuff. And of course it like, it concerns our public health system, which is important every day, but especially important right now during a pandemic, not to speak in like superlatives or extremes, but like, I can't think of a more important story in the last 18 months. This and probably, you know, the protests and that happened in the wake of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter resurgence, like those are probably one and one A of like the most important stories specifically in Spokane. So sure. I mean, I would also throw out there, not just because I wrote about this too, but the hospitals reaching this sort of boiling point and being so full with the pandemic as well. Definitely high up there. And and definitely that's what's driving also so much of our attention at the health district right now. You know, of course, we would be paying attention or trying to pay attention otherwise, but the pandemic has really brought that front center. That was a really natural way to plug your own reporting. That was very good work. We had Jeff Ketchell on the show a couple months ago and public health and healthcare, our healthcare system, those aren't like separate entities they're intertwined and we're seeing that and that's a really really good point that you bring up so it's like there's all this stuff so again it could easily be a four-hour interview but i thought we could just start with your cover story from october 14th and see where we get both forwards uh, into history with some recent stuff that's happened since then and then maybe back we could sort of backfill information i don't know who doesn't know what's that dr lutz was fired and there's been all this controversy but we I don't know that we need to rehash that except maybe in places where it's like really, you know, needs to be sort of reminded. So the print version of the story was called Exodus and online the headline read, as the pandemic rages on, Spokane Health District employees say poor leadership is driving dozens to leave the agency. The great resignation is affecting public health departments across the state. We talked about that with Jeff as well and across the country, but this is different. So What's going on at the Spokane Regional Health District that's like qualitatively different than just the intense fatigue of fighting a pandemic? You know, I, I think it's it is all intertwined. Still, um, one of the folks that I talked to actually kind of framed it in the way of, you know, if it had just been that I was dealing with stresses of the pandemic, or maybe that I had just had the stresses of leadership within the district to deal with, that would be one thing. But sort of dealing with all of these things at the same time has led to a, a large number of folks, particularly in leadership, wanting to to leave. Uh, and in Spokane, uh, the issues that people were telling me about really do sort of go to the top with Administrative Officer Amelia Clark and the time that she started. I will say, she's not the first Administrative Officer or, or leader there to have issues, however. These are issues that have sort of been around at the Health District for years. She inherited them folks are telling me that it's been worse since she started. So the really unique thing is that there have been some changes in leadership and folks are facing some issues for sure internally when they bring things up to their boss. Some folks are feeling micromanaged in some ways. In other places, people are feeling like really poor public health decisions are being made and largely they're pointing to political pressure leading that. Okay. Decisions aren't being made exclusively in the interest of public health, but maybe to help certain politicians save face or the agency as a whole save face? I don't know if I would say it that way, but uh, maybe in the sense of 
those pressures of, you know, how is this going to affect businesses? How is this going to affect the economy? Those are really being pressed into the conversation when you have folks internally who are maybe in epidemiology or they're in health data and they're like, hey, we should really be looking at science and what case numbers are and have that drive our decisions. We shouldn't be having the, the most important conversation be how does this affect the economy, for example. Right. So it's a, it's a microcosm of the conversation we've been having as a society about yeah, yeah. lockdown versus stay open. So what impacts is all of this sort of as a whole having on, on the district's ability and its employees' ability to, to do public health? I think what we're seeing right now, uh, we're kind of in a holding pattern to see how um, public health services may be impacted. I don't know that anybody really has told me, you know, there's a a desperate need for this service and we're not providing that. Uh, What we have seen is lots of management leaving, particularly at the administrative level and then the higher level. There's all these tiers that sort of exist there. And I think what we're about to see based on the health district or the health board meeting yesterday is another restructuring of that entire process, fewer managers, combining of departments because so many people have left and those positions have not been filled for whatever reason. And again, another thing we talked with Jeff about a couple months ago was that Washington State had underfunded its public health program maybe since the beginning, since the 60s when it was created or the late 50s. The legislature took steps to resolve that actually by putting a bunch of money, permanent money into public health uh, in the last legislative session, which is cool. If we can't actually fill those positions we've had, funding might not even matter if you can't get people to fill these roles. Right. And I do think that's a concern that when I spoke with uh, the sort of national organization that works with, they represent health departments around the country and sort of the interests of employees at every level at health departments. That's the real concern. I think one of the quotes in my story from there's not a big bench of players to pull from internally Mm -hmm. in public health. There's not like two other people lined up to to be health officer and apply for a job within the health district. There's not two or three people lined up to apply for these administrative positions or to carry on 30 more years of public experience. I think that's sort of the big concern is there will likely be actually out of the pandemic, a huge interest in going into public health, people who want to help, who go to school for this and come in brand new. But the concern is that so many people who've been running these programs for years are leaving and that institutional knowledge won't be there. Yeah. That was that Jeff brought that up as well. That's that's fascinating. And it strikes me that because there's not a deep bench, it's kind of a what would it be a seller's market, a job seekers market. Maybe if you're choosing between two health departments and, and geography isn't an issue, one that has a documented history of administrative controversy, let's say, might not be the choice you make, right? Yeah. And that's definitely something that we talked about as well. You know, sometimes stories like my stories can uh, sort of harm that uh, job seeking, I guess, but also in the sense of, you know, we're pointing out what's actually going on. So it's unfortunate that it's sort of characterized that way because we don't, we certainly don't want to, you know, diminish uh, the public health agency and harm public health work in Spokane. That's, that's not the intent of what we're doing. We just, 
need to be reporting on some of these important important issues that are that are driving problems within the district. Yeah, well, it is once again journalists are destroying our society. Is what I hear you saying? No, just <laughs> no and this this stuff is really really important. And I want to get into the public stuff in a second, but I want to stay here just a little bit longer to like. I, well, okay, I was having a, a beverage with a fellow journalist and friend who was a little upset that you scooped him on this story. I was also hearing people talking to me, not in a way that I ever felt comfortable reporting on with the, you know, what we've got going on here at range, but I was hearing about this for a while. He was too. You must've been, it takes a lot for public employees to speak out like this. So on the one hand, it's, it's pretty meaningful that they did. So on the other hand, it may have been sort of a while in the making. So when did you start hearing, when did people start reaching out to you and kind of, so, and, and if, if you can use that as a, as a barometer for like how long these pressures have been mounting, just because sure. it's such a, it's such a big step for somebody to take, to, to speak to the press. It is. I, and I, you're totally right. I mean, it is rare that we get people who work at agencies like this, who are really passionate about it, um, who want to go to the media versus their manager or their supervisor to deal with issues. I, I would really take it back to last October. Um, mm. October 29th is when the meeting, the, big meeting with Amelia Clark and um, former health officer, Dr. Bob Lutz happened and he was fired. And the next morning we all learned that he was no longer the health officer. And there was the, you know, confusion of why that was, how that happened, what the process was. And that week is really when people started reaching out. I did some of the early reporting um, and people were just saying, you know, that things aren't great at the health district. There's been issues, but it kind of trickled as far as people being more and more specific over the last year. Hey, there's really a lot of people leaving. You should really keep an eye on how many people are quitting. People are leaving without another job lined up because they would rather not work here anymore. Um, And it was really, I think, in September that I started trying to get some of these people on the record. And, And what drove so many people to talk to me was really the intro to this story issues with the isolation center and and issues with people being told essentially to hide public records or avoid public records disclosure in yeah. some way. And that that really upset a lot of public staff who really truly believe, you know, we should be totally transparent. There should be nothing to hide, so to speak. That was my absolute next question. You're making this really, really easy for me. So <laughs> And just to be clear, you meant you started reporting this out concretely in September of this year, not last year. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Of this year. The opening scene of the story um, kind of blew my mind. So maybe let's, let's go through that. Like employees are reporting basically a dirty and potentially unsafe isolation facility in the valley, I think at the roadway in, if I remember correctly. And there were two extremely concerning parts of that. And I kind of wanted to take them one at a time. Most obviously that SRHD was potentially going to be isolating people in dirty and dangerous and or dangerous facilities. So like, how could that have happened? Right. I, and I think that's the question that folks who didn't feel comfortable going on the record with their name were sharing with me. And that includes people who, by the way, have since stopped working for the district because this is a small, big city and they're yeah. concerned about like potential conflicts with their new jobs. But I mean, the issues that they brought up were, they were housing people there. There were isolation folks held at this hotel, this motel that from day one um, seemed sort of a scramble to them. So before this, the county was housing people at my place hotel in 
also in the Valley. Uh, and for whatever reason, that contract was ended. Uh, and that was never fully made clear exactly why it was ended sort of early. There's maybe some more reporting to do there as far as um, right. the, the ins and outs of that whole issue. But um, And I should be clear because somebody else pointed out to me, they were like, you shouldn't say the county and the health district interchangeably, and I'm not. So Spokane County, the agency, okay. is the one that made the choice for where these isolation facilities should be. Gotcha. The health district is the one running the team. Okay. And it's sort of not up to the health district where the county wants to pay to put people. So it sounds like the county, the health district, and the staff working this isolation facility had gone around and looked at other potential places to put people. And most of these folks who don't have a way to isolate at home are homeless. And there was sort of this odd thing where they ended the My Place isolation facility at the end of August. They were told, actually, homeless shelter providers are going to be able to provide isolation on their own. Shelter providers say, whoa, 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 no, we, we, we said we could do that for a few days, not forever. So then there's sort of a scramble to get a facility in the roadway and is selected. And immediately staff are seeing issues with dirty rooms, dirty bedding. One room had cockroaches in it. They're, they have to provide food to the folks who are staying there. And they couldn't even get delivery drivers from certain delivery services to go there wow. because it's a pretty dangerous area. They yeah. said that they saw open drug deals. Some of them as staff, uh, health district staff, were propositioned for sex. I mean, these are all very concerning things and they bring this up to their bosses in an email and rather than getting a bunch of concern it's sort of this is what we have to work with we'll figure out how to get security there for you guys um, and then they get phone calls saying don't put information like that in email because it needs to be accurate and verified and we shouldn't be putting potentially defamatory things in emails what if the media gets a hold of this and it gets on the front page of the paper. So I want to I want to go into that, and that's like where my mind immediately goes. But I, I also do want to go back to the isolation facility. So what was it fixed? Was it rectified? Was a safe place found, or was that place made safe for people to isolate? Because again, like let's just like underscore why this is important. What you just said was the reason you would need an isolation facility is if you don't have really a, if your home for some reason isn't adequate, which could mean that maybe you're in a multi generational family or it's a small apartment or something and you there's no way to effectively isolate to protect your loved ones probably more likely you just don't have a home at all so a lot of homeless folks ended up at these isolation facilities so right was that ever rectified because it, it strikes me and again i'm going to editorialize i'm not going to ask you to editorialize that like we're not doing a great job of helping homeless people in our community or even treating them as humans right now. This feels theoretically potentially like an outgrowth of that neglect. And I'm sure for homeless folks who might already feel neglected in our society, it, it's heartbreaking on so many levels to me. At any rate, I mean, I'm not going to weigh in with a personal opinions on this, but um, definitely the concerns that health district staff were bringing to me, a lot of them care a lot about these folks and want to make sure that yeah. no matter who they're serving, they're they're in a room that any of us would be willing to stay in. Yeah. There was sort of this sense that they shared with me that it was coming from leadership within the district or the county that, well, they're just homeless. I mean, this oh, is wow. better than nothing. Like wow. That was the sense that they were feeling when they didn't feel the concerns yeah. being, you know, they were expecting, I guess, more shock or something. Right. Um, that said, they were only there for a couple of weeks, it sounds mm -hmm. like, once this was really pointed out. And I don't know for sure what the final straw was. I do know that there were issues with that motel not even being 
licensed with the State Department of Health. They're oh, wow. still currently pending right now. I actually just before this interview looked it up again. Jeez. They they just had an inspection like three days before my article came out, apparently, but, but the results hadn't been posted yet. So they had things that were actually pretty critical issues, like some of the smoke detectors were missing from some rooms or covered up with plastic. They had like electrical panels that were blocked. Um, and then they had like mold and mildew and stained mattresses and dirty, and those are considered non-critical issues, mold, mildew, dirty, general, right. everything. So the county did come up with another solution, uh, and forgive me for because I forget what the current um, facility is, but they do have another solution in place. This only lasted a couple of weeks, but another concern that I think is worth mentioning is, if you can remember, right at the beginning of September, right as the county was ready to not have isolation rooms available at all, the Delta variant was making hospitalizations in the area skyrocket. And that's right when our hospitals started filling up. So yeah. it did not feel like the right time to these staff to be winding things down. Okay. So then let's talk about managers calling people back. The county regional health district distinction there is pretty interesting where it's like one agency sort of made the decision and then representatives of the other agency go there and find it in the state that it's in and report up to their superiors that it's just really not adequate for isolating people the way they need to. And and sort of rather than being commended or for whatever, they get calls from their managers saying, don't email concerns because emails are subject to public disclosure laws. seems like there's a, a lot wrong with that. Yeah, uh, this is one that as a journalist, of course, I do feel comfortable having an opinion on. And <laughs> I, I feel very strongly, yeah. <laughs> I feel very strongly that public employees should not be in any way trying to hide the work that they do. I, I wish I could pull up the language of the Public Records Act right now, but it's, it's very strongly worded. It's essentially like we, the people of the state, do not cede the authority to our staff members, our employees, to pick and choose what we deserve to know. Uh, and as a journalist, one of the best things that we can do is uncover when things have gone wrong, sometimes through public records requests. So, yeah, hearing that there's some sort of attempt to circumvent the Rec Public Records Act, I mean, not only is that concerning just as a citizen uh, and as a journalist, but it's, it could actually be considered illegal depending on the exact phrases that were used. Right. And actually, I, w I did want to quote it. So you're kind of jumping ahead now. So if you could kind of. Oh, sorry, I'll try and walk myself back. I'm used to leading the interviews. Lately, I know. So. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is uncomfortable. It was meaningful enough to me because not all laws are worded as strongly as this law is. So I actually did want to read it out and then we'll, we'll jump back in. But it says, quote, the public of the state do not yield their sovereignty to the agencies that serve them. The people, in delegating authority, do not give their public servants the right to decide what is good for the people to know and what is not good for them to know. The people insist on remaining informed so they maintain control over the instruments that they have created. That is not an ambiguously worded piece of legislation at all. No, it's, it's very strong and for good reason. And so there's no way in which what happened there could be like an accepted practice that just seems weird to outsiders or seems a little bit suspect. Like it's it's clearly against the law and a very strongly worded, unambiguously worded law. Yeah, I, I spoke to some folks who are big proponents of public records, including the former president of uh, WashCog, the Co Coalition for Open Government. And he sort of said, you know, it, it would be one thing if your boss emails you and says, hey, just give me a call. 
you know, that's pretty typical way to manage people, especially right. in my mind, you know, if I'm getting an email with concerns from someone who works for me and it's at that level that was laid out in bullet points about the isolation facility, actually calling that person makes a lot of sense. Oh my gosh, we need to work on this right now. Right. Um, and that wouldn't be documented in a written format and that's fine. But specifically trying to tell people to put things in a document, for example, and put draft in the title, there isn't even an exemption that would really cover that for the record. But um, it seemed like they were trying to get at that. Right. So they were trying to circumvent the law in a way that wouldn't have actually circumvented the law. So it's kind of keystone copsy at that level as well. Yeah. I mean, there is an exemption where if a public policy is being drafted, uh, they don't have to give you the draft documents before the vote or whatever has happened, whatever decision-making process is done. Okay. But once it's done, all of that documentation is subject to public disclosure. But th these weren't drafts of policy. These were staff reporting up to their superiors that like about problems yeah. or whatever. So there's, there's no way that would have even applied. Yeah, not as far as I know. So Bob Lutz and now Frank Velasquez, they're the health officer. So they're the, like the actual doctor whose medical license is sort of on the line with these public health decisions. They're the ones sort of who are supposed to be making like the medical decisions uh, on policy and stuff like that. Amelia Clark is sort of, it's a little unclear, like who's the boss of whom, but they're kind of like meant to co-lead these or this organization together. So she's the administrator. She didn't speak to you on the record as far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong there, but in an email to the, the union that represents some of these workers, she said she did not know of policies telling people to write things in draft form, which sort of suggests that if it did happen, she it happened without her knowledge or she's trying to make it seem like it happened without her knowledge, sort of pushing blame down from the top and into like middle management. Were you able to validate that in any way or is it sort of just a he said, she said scenario? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say for sure where um, the directive came from because she did deny in that email that there was any policy that she knew of that would say so. Uh, she did also in the email to the union say something along the lines of, I know that staff are being reminded to make sure that what they email each other is factually accurate because we need to be cognizant of that because everything that we do is subject to public records disclosure. But what staff members who received these calls from their managers told me is it came through a couple levels of management where, you know, their manager's manager is told then to tell everybody on the team, don't do this, essentially. Right. Um, and at least a couple of people that I talked to had multiple phone calls from different supervisors about this. It came from multiple levels, and uh, it's that definitely seems to point to either... Uh, Lola Phillips, who's the deputy administrative officer under Amelia Clark, okay, um, or someone within that chain of command. You know, it's like the way that like RICO, I'm, I'm mostly, I'm going back to my knowledge of uh, um, organized crime that comes from mine, mostly from movies, but like the way that you get at sort of who, where the buck ultimately stopped would be to sort of like talk to the lowest manager and then the, that manager's like, my boss told me to do it. And then you talk to that person and get all the way up. It seems to be that if there's some ambiguity about whether there's going to be like a criminal investigation or whether the law like supports that or what that would even look like. Do you get a sense that there's anybody sort of pursuing how far up the chain this directive went in any sort of official investigative capacity? Not that I know of. I mean, I almost laughed a little bit, to be honest, when you started bringing up Rico right now. Like, like that's like big level criminal investigation. I, I don't think, even as we're talking about potential illegality with Public Records Act, I don't think that 
anybody is investigating this okay. uh, in that way uh, for any sort of charges. I, I think the way that our Records Act is enforced is through citizen lawsuits, okay. typically. So unless somebody is intending to sue over that specific issue uh, and documenting it, which I, I don't believe is the case, um, I, yeah, I don't think that those sort of interviews all the way up the chain are happening. You did write, though, that certain managers were told but refused to write up staff who sent their concerns in writing. So that sort of validates that it's multiple levels of management, but that also certain managers refused because it didn't feel appropriate to them. Right. And that's being relayed to me by people who got these phone calls, right? Yeah. As they're on the phone talking to their supervisor, hearing, hey, don't put this in email anymore. That's the same time that they're hearing, by the way, I was also told to write you up officially oh, wow. for this email. And I asked for clarification on what the actual rule you broke was. And then it kind of stopped there because wow. there wasn't exactly an official rule that says don't write concerns to your boss. So with, with that being the case, it would it would not be untruthful. For, I'm not asking you to speculate here, but it would not be untruthful for Amelia Clark to say, I'm not aware of any policy because there wasn't one, but also it could have just been a directive that came from above outside of policy to skirt these laws, theoretically. Yeah, I mean, uh, so the reason I, I think we get that language from Amelia Clark saying I don't, I'm not aware of any official policy. What the union had actually asked for was there were so many people who brought this complaint forward saying, hey, we're being told not to put stuff in emails and that seems really concerning and yeah. potentially illegal. The union rep asked Amelia as the administrator to specifically put that in policy, uh, which also has to happen with negotiations with the union or right. point to where in their contract it says this is a rule that should be followed which is a, an attempt by the union to protect its members and actually sort of like prevent seat of your pants policy writing or just like, you know, decisions by management that might be exist outside of policy. Right. Well, and our public records act is actually very strong. If you're told to do the wrong thing and you do that, you're still the one who's responsible for, for not following public records properly. It, it, it does in a certain sense, stop like the buck stops with your boss, but if you're also not following the Public Records Act, you are wow, yeah. you're breaking the law. So um, I think it, it's noteworthy and good that these district employees, I mean, understood state law well enough to push back on that right. and sort of have their gut instinct kick in. Hey, why is why is this an issue to talk about? Right. And because and, you can't hide behind the chain of command, basically. Right. You already mentioned it a little bit, um, but you, you spoke with transparency advocates about this. What did they have to say about this practice? That it's it's not good. <laughs> Don't do it. Um, yeah, I mean, they were they were pretty strongly wording. You know, it's uh, it's not an honest practice and it's not legal in, in most senses of the word. And, you know, I think I can't remember the quote that's in the story here, but it was something along the lines of like, you know, gosh, in 30 years of representing newspapers and the public and getting these mm. cases done, I'm always surprised to hear that people continue to, to try and get away with stuff like this. Right. That was actually, I've got that one too. Michelle Earl Hubbard. Oh, thank yeah, you. Thank in, you yes. in 25 years as a lawyer litigating PRA cases, public records cases, and representing newspapers, I keep I keep expecting our leaders and public servants to be smarter about their actions and to realize the harm they cause to themselves and the public's trust of their agency with antics like this. Then I see examples like yours and have the same shocked, what were they thinking reaction I've been having for nearly three decades. Yeah. 
Uh, that's a good summary. It's pretty powerful. And and then you you noted, so this was in a follow-up story. It was really, really good and, um, about like transparency activists weighing in on your story. Or you noted that city administrator Johnny Perkins told the former division head just to talk to him in person or on the phone rather than sending emails. So on the one hand, it's not like this, this happens and you wouldn't have lawyers who sort of specialize in public records cases if this sort of bullshit didn't happen a lot. That said, did you get a sense from those advocates that the SRHD was like a different level? Like it was more comprehensive than just one person saying, hey, don't don't email me about that. Let's let's have a conversation. Uh, I didn't get that sense from the advocates. And, and also, for the record, that was my coworker's helpful note to add to my story about the city level issues with public records. That, that wasn't Wilson? coming from the, yeah, the, uh, it was Daniel. Oh, Daniel Walters. Actually, yeah. so he's, Daniel Walters has written quite a bit about the, the issues with cities with the city's own staffing exodus in some ways, uh, maybe in a smaller way. But yeah, he sort of noted, hey, this might be something to bring up that, you know, it actually isn't unique even within Spokane to see that there may be some issues with leadership uh, and not being the biggest fans of public records. Right. Uh, I I don't know that I would say at all that this is totally unprecedented or, or, you know, sort of way bigger of a deal than other issues in other parts of the state uh, because unfortunately we do see cases come up quite often uh, in the Seattle area and other areas uh, just when people you know unfortunately bad things happen sometimes when you're when you're being a leader and you you don't always want people to learn exactly how that went down right this might be tough for you to get a handle on and and I don't think you would have gone to press with it maybe if you felt this way but like I just wanted to make sort of clear for folks to what extent did you get a sense? Because again, we are, Amelia Clark is in the middle of a, a pretty public fight that's now turned into a lawsuit that we're going to talk about in a second with, against, uh, with um, former uh, health officer Bob Lutz. Did you get a sense that these folks were like just pro Lutz partisans who didn't like Clark's style? Or, or how did you sort of quantify for yourself as a reporter that it, it went far beyond just um, people with an ax to grind about a, a personnel decision that was made? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, that was certainly a concern that I had. Uh, you want to be cautious, especially when using anonymous, so to speak, sources right. where we're not naming people. I want to make sure that it's not, uh, you know, I'm fact checking everything that they're telling me, getting multiple people confirming every single fact that I run without specific attribution. Um, and and I think you see this in some of the sources who actually did make it into the story with their names that uh, it was very clear that it was not just an axe to grind with Amelia Clark, that there's been issues previously. Gosh, is it Ashley Beck? I want to say there were so many folks uh, who previously was a manager with the district in one of those higher level positions actually mm-hmm. brought up that back in 2018, she'd gone to the health board saying, hey, there's clearly issues with their then administrator and the health officer and different district uh, managers, and they were not communicating well and sort of suggested, let's have this third-party firm come in, do this three-year, $100,000 study and management plan, and they will track us and sort of help facilitate these conversations and and in some senses point out how the the health board can sometimes be the, the issue, pressuring politically some of the decisions. The people who are left, who are still at the department, how do they feel about all this? Are things getting better? Does it feel like they're turning a corner? Is it still just as, you know, are, do they have any hope that there are better days on the horizon? You know, I haven't gotten a 
big chance to like check back in with every single source that I talked to. Uh, a lot of folks were hopeful that the story coming out might change some things within the district. Definitely the fact that journalists are paying attention to what's going on and, and willing to continue listening if more issues come up, I think has given some of them hope, just in the sense that there's an extra layer. If, if the layers that exist for them to go to their bosses and their supervisors don't feel like it's, it's working. Uh, again, I, I think most of these people are really dedicated to public health and they, and they don't want to be in the spotlight and they don't really want to talk to other people about what they do every day for their work. They would like to just talk to their coworkers and their bosses and sort of get that important work done. So yeah, I guess it, we'll see how things go. Um, I will say Amelia Clark said at the health board meeting yesterday that she's started offering, I think, sort of informal meetings with groups of 10 or fewer people at the health district to talk about anything, mm. uh, any issues. I know one of the things that uh, she did not grant me an interview, what she did was send me sort of a statement in an email for this story. But she had said that, you know, she was sort of surprised to hear that people were saying that they were leaving because of decisions she might have made or, or changes there. Um, I don't know that that's totally accurate. There were people who said in their exit interviews, they made it pretty clear that those were sort of the issues. But um, it does seem like she's taking from this story forward that uh, folks are, are not necessarily feeling safe to come talk to her uh, and, and is trying to open up a little bit more. That's good to hear. Our interim health officer, Frank Velasquez, has become our permanent health officer, at least for the time being. Has he gone on the record with any of this stuff? Did he talk to you for this story? Have you heard anything about his his thoughts on this stuff? Uh, I did not reach out to him for this okay. story. I mean, I really felt uh, Amelia would have been the, the really great person to talk to about these gotcha. particular issues. Uh, yeah, so as far as I know, he hasn't gone on the record about these issues. And I want and I want to get to Bob Lutz's wrongful termination lawsuit in a second. That's kind of where we'll end, I think. And maybe you've already started talking about it a little bit. Once again, you're just so on the on the ball today. But like, where where do you think the agency goes from here in its attempts to sort of like as, get back to normal as much as possible during a centenary pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to say. Uh, you know, I'm not uh, an expert in leadership and management. I sort of repair those relationships when they're not great. I think it's probably a good step that uh, Amelia's taken as far as saying, I am willing to listen to you guys um, bring up any issues that you might have. Let's sort of have some chats. I think anything that can break down the walls of people really, I mean, they really described a sense of fear that, hey, if I bring up an issue in my day-to-day -day job, I might not only get blamed for that issue existing, but I might get fired. Right. Um, and that's not a great way for anybody to do their day-to-day -day job, particularly when it's stressful <laughs> say the least. public health, <laughs> health work. So anything to, to really open those lines of communication, I think will be great. And I think maybe just awareness of how conversations can influence uh, employees underneath management, uh, maybe at the health board level as well. I mean, being made up of basically all politicians at this point, right. uh, if, if there's any sort of if this gets through to them at all, I don't know. But um, I mean, sort of the, hearing from those former health district employees who said, you know, it, it actually does make a big difference how you talk to our bosses, because then they pass it on down the line. We can't do that because that's not sort of what people are looking for. So where's your reporting leading next? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll we'll keep an eye on everything. You know, I'm interested in talking to Dr. Velasquez um, now that he is the permanent health officer and 
sort of seeing um, what vision he may have for public health as it moves forward. I think you brought up an interesting point earlier as far as sort of waffling on who's in charge of the agency. That was a big thing that came up in my interview with Al French. The, the health board did switch the way that our health district was managed. So previously, the health officer was the top employee. The administrative officer was underneath them. I don't know if you know doctors or many doctors. Not a lot of them are super great at like administrative tasks right. and like numbers and like the real detailed work than an administrator does. And so the health board several years ago decided it made a lot more sense to have an administrator at the top of that food chain who had the health officer as an employee. Um, there are strict state laws on sort of how those processes work for a health officer because you do still need those people to have certain qualifications. Yeah, it's that was sort of a big shift for the health district, and that was something Al French pointed out as potentially driving some of the folks who left as well. It's a really interesting question that I don't know. I don't know if I would have made the same decision in the same place of like who who ultimately in a goodwill, good faith disagreement between like an administrator and a doctor in in something like public health i don't know if i would have chosen to make the administrator the you know the the tie-breaking vote in that but you know it it, it certainly isn't illegal and it it certainly does seem like the state has policy around or you know there's there are structures in place to make sure that the administrator is not overruling the doctor on on matters of public health right and and that is important i mean the the public health officer has certain duties and roles that aren't superseded by having a boss in your day-to-day office, right? Right. You know, it's still the health officer who makes the calls on if someone has to be required to go into quarantine. uh, If, you know, we want to have a once in a hundred years pandemic comes up and you need to like issue a mask mandate, for example, that's still a public health officer who makes that call. On the 27th of October, and it strikes me that was within two days of the anniversary of his firing, right? You said it was the 29th of October last year that he was, was the date of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, Dr. Bob Lutz fired a wrong, filed a wrongful termination lawsuit against SRHD. Um, so can you tell uh, us? Not, not quite a lawsuit yet. So yeah. Oh, it's the <laughs> Sorry to yeah, yeah. No, please. Yeah. Well, and so actually it looks like the date on this, it was sent on October 8th, which I didn't even notice when I wrote my piece. Um, his lawyer sort of announced it on Wednesday, which is the 27th, right. um, which you're right, is almost exactly a year later. Um, and so basically, if you're suing a public agency, you kind of have to go through this process of giving them a chance. Essentially, uh, you, you file a claim with them. Uh, and that's what he's done. He's filed an administrative gotcha. claim for wrongful termination. And uh, the health district could try and settle outside of that going to court eventually. And I think it's something like 60 days that they have to sort of reach out and do that. He's asking for money, which is makes sense. He's also asking for his job back. Yeah, that was a maybe surprise to me. I okay. don't. I feel like everybody must have been surprised by that. Yeah, because I mean, uh, I, I think everybody expected the claim to happen. Uh, yeah. So what what does that mean? Uh, asking for his job back. Honestly, I, I still don't know. I, that that's you're talking about. Where's the next step of my reporting? And that's a great place for me to start asking questions okay. because I don't know if he could have that happen in a court of law. You know, like a right. judge can't say this must be the health officer, especially now that the health board has appointed Dr. Velasquez as the health officer. I don't. I, it would be like a huge mess that probably the state board of health would have to reach in and 
determine who properly goes there, but it, it really is up to the local health board who is the health officer. So I don't know that there, even if he were to win in court over the wrongful termination aspects of his case, um, and I'm not a lawyer, so I probably shouldn't even speculate on that, but I, <laughs> I would be really surprised if a judge could somehow give him his job, job back. The meeting of the State Board of Health where they decided to do the investigation about the firing, it seemed like the, the State Board at that time didn't know if they had the power to give him his job back either, if they were pending the outcome of that investigation. Did you do any follow-up on that, or do you know anything about that? Right. I mean, I think they're very clear that what they as the State Board of Health have authority to do is uh, if they find that the administrative officer acted improperly or illegally, they can issue punishment of some kind or they could remove her from her position. Um, I think they did have some discussion where it, it seemed like it became pretty clear that they they wouldn't be able to just say, because that was done illegally, therefore he gets his job back. It strikes me, again, not a lawyer, but it does strike me that in asking as part of the claim for his job back, it makes it pretty unlikely that the regional health district would be able to settle out of court if he if he sticks to that desire. Like he's not going to, if short of giving him his job back, it's probably not going to get settled out of court. Yeah, I, I, I don't know exactly what goes into that. I mean, I do know that public agencies have insurance companies typically, and I do know the health district has also retained an outside attorney who's been on board since this entire thing started a year ago. Um, and they've probably looked at some rubrics of, okay, how expensive is this for us if we do settle versus if we go to court? Um, in, in that claim, he lays out the reasoning. I, I know $1.4 million is a pretty large number to yeah. the, the lay folk like us. <laughs> um, it's massive. Yeah. And it, the, the math that's in there makes a lot of sense, though, when you see it. I mean, it's essentially, I think he's in his 50s, his late 50s right now. It shows how much he was making before he left, which was almost $200,000 a year. And how many more years would he have until retirement and then some damages? And and again, I've probably been watching too much billions, but it strikes me that that, like including the getting your job back thing was probably or could have been. And again, I'm not asking you to speculate. I'm just my mind's sort of racing as I'm thinking about this. It's like they could easily just be like, yeah, sure, we'll give you $1.4 million. Now get out of here. It's, it's done with. But that extra that extra piece is going to actually draw this process out a decent amount, I think, because that's even if they could give that, they might not want to. Uh, and it would be messy no matter what. So it strikes me that's a pretty interesting uh, lawyerly tactic to go for. I will say, uh, you know, if the health district or the health board or maybe even just a couple members of the health board, if we're talking about Benwick and Mary Cuny, if they didn't think it was a good use of taxpayer dollars to even get a mediator to make sure that Dr. Lutz and Amelia Clark could figure out and maybe continue working together. Yeah, I, do, I don't think that's a likely outcome that they're going to then say, sure, you clearly have resolved your issues and can work together in the future. <laughs> right. That's a fair point. Yeah. I think that's all the questions I have. Is there anything that you're sort of that's like an angle on this that's that's fascinating to you? Something we haven't talked about yet? Something that the listeners can keep their keep an eye out for? I don't know that there's much more that I would add. Honestly, there's uh, like you said, we could talk for four hours about this if you want to keep digging into yeah, any of the right, details. Right. But um, you know, uh, I'll be really really interested to see how that hearing for Amelia Clark goes in January with the 
Office of Administrative Hearings, okay. um, in front of an administrative law judge, and I'll be making sure to cover that as much as I can, um, because that's when we'll see sort of the next big, are they going to find that this was done illegally? Um, you know, as I've reported, there was an actual email from the health board's attorney that said uh, right. you know, he was fired that right. day. It all said he was terminated. Um, and that's really the crux of that entire investigation is sort of this claim from Amelia Clark that, oh, no, I put him on administrative leave right. and asked him to retire. Uh, and then the health board voted to fire him. And whether or not that happened in the proper order, which I think we're pretty clear it did not, right. that'll then lead to what the next sort of consequences are. Right, because state law was pretty clear and the, only the board can fire the health officer specifically or just a, a high-level administrator in general. Is it, is, is it a health district-specific law or is it more of like a uh, sort of an executive-level leadership law? I think it's at both levels. So it's in the Spokane Health District bylaws and it's at the state health or like the RCWs. Um, but essentially there needs to be a public vote of the health board. Um, so that was the early question was, okay, well, if the health board voted an executive session against state law and gave her the approval to fire him, that's illegal on the part of the health board. And if they didn't do that and she went and fired him without them voting, that's illegal on the part of the administrative officer has to have this meeting first. So it was either the, the health department broke the sort of, what is it, the Open Meetings Act? Yeah, the Open Public, open public Meetings Act. Yeah, or... Amelia broke whatever RCW and and also was in violation of the the health district specific bylaws in firing him without the uh, without the consent of the board. So either way, probably some law got broken by one party or the other. Right. Is that hearing part of the state health um, investigation or is that separate from it? That yes, that is the um, the culmination essentially of that state health investigation. Okay. So that's happening in January. That's like the next concrete thing we know is on the calendar and people will be looking out uh, for Samantha at the Inlander. What's your Twitter handle? Saw Wolfile, S-A Wolfile. Okay. I'll, uh, we'll, we'll put a link to that. There might be stuff happening with Bob Lutz's legal claim as well. We don't really know any hard and fast timelines for that, but, um, this is stuff you're going to keep digging into. Is this like kind of your primary beat or do you? Um, <laughs> I mean, it's so, it's yeah, weird so in I, all weekly. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it is weird in all weekly. So there's uh, currently three news writers, uh, myself, Wilson and Daniel, and um, our previous editor, Jacob Fries, recently left for another job. Uh, congrats, Jacob. But so Wilson and I have both taken on some shared news editing as well. So I'm now the breaking news editor, which means, you know, I'll be working on some shorter pieces for our website, um, but maybe also um, getting a little bit less time for writing too, which is, uh, I don't know. Well, we're seeing how it shakes out. It's really fun. I, it is fun when people ask, what's your beat? And I sometimes struggle and say, oh, I do environmental stuff and I do healthcare stuff, but also sometimes I do like police stuff or mental health or social <laughs> services or like the list just gets so long. It's like, you may as well just call us general assignment reporters at this point. Thank you so much for coming on. This is really, really great. This is the first like lengthy conversation you and I have ever had. It was a real, real pleasure. And the, and the reporting's been really excellent. So just thank you so much for your work. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate being asked to be on. And um, yeah, we'll definitely keep an eye out as much as we can. And um, thanks to, to you guys for wanting to, I guess, like have people pointed towards the Inlander because we always love to have people, you know, I don't want to write a 3,000, 4,000 word story and not have many folks read it. So it's always great when we can sort of bring more attention to that. Absolutely. Well, 
Thanks so much, Sam. Have a, have a nice weekend. Great. Thanks. You too. All right. See you. Thanks again to Samantha for coming on. As always, thanks to Connor Bacon for the interview edits. Thanks to Caleb Brook for the production assistance. That is it for us, y'all. Have a good weekend. Bye.